Wonderful. Uh, let's just stand up a second um, before we get into this. It's lovely to see you all this evening. If, if you've not been along before, um, you probably ought to know that during non-COVID times, we normally have the glass doors closed at the back, and then there's a sort of point in the evening where you're allowed to evacuate into that uh, area that Emma's in at the back, and there's like hot chocolate and cake and all that sort of stuff uh, going. But uh, now when we evacuate, you just get to go outside. So um, it's, it's a bit of a, a rum deal, but it nevertheless is still. Um, and what I wanted to do before you sit down is I want you just to decide for yourself whether you think your life on average has been pretty good or on average has been pretty hard. Uh, and if you're going to go on average it's been pretty good, uh, you're going to turn around clockwise and sit down. And if you think on average it's been pretty hard, you're going to turn around anti-clockwise and sit down. And if you can't work out which way is which, you can just you know keep spinning until it's just a, the clockwise if you think on average it's been good. Um, we'll, we'll sit down in a second, um, but let's just pray before we do so. God, thank you so much for your grace on us this evening. And we pray that you pour your spirit out on us afresh in particular. I pray that you raise up justice warriors this evening in this building. People who care about what you care about and can put into action what is on your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. So turn around and sit down. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, in tonight's passage is one person who's, I think, had a pretty good life and one person who's had a pretty appalling life so far. And I wanted to uh, get into this passage by uh, telling you a little bit about what I did when I was, uh, when I was 21. And I was just finishing off at a university, I was at Cambridge University, and a friend there said, I've got a church in Walsall, which I'd never heard of, it's near Birmingham, uh, that has got prostitutes and millionaires sitting next to each other. And it's amazing. And then he then get, went on to describe his gap year working for the church and his they rented a van and they'd hauled furniture around and given it to people and they'd done all this wonderful stuff for the community. Uh, and I was like, this is really interesting. And then I had this sort of nudge from God that he wanted me to go over to Walsall as well. I wasn't trying to meet the ex-prostitutes. I was just sort of felt I should go with my friends and join in with what was going on. So I moved over to uh, Walsall and uh, it was an extraordinary gap year. God sorted out a whole load of things for me. I, I had a, a summer where I worked for PGL Adventure Holidays, so doing all those sort of abseiling and that sort of thing. And then I got paid for an entire term as a geography and PE teacher uh, to cover for someone who went to coach Pakistan's in international cricket team. Uh, but he got fired or, or quit his job after a few weeks. Uh, so he came back at half term. And so at half term, I was able to go up to Walsall and I sort of settled in there trying to work out what to do. At Christmas time, I picked up a, a job working on a homeless hostel for 16 to 25-year-olds who had had just the most different start to life that I had had you could possibly imagine. I think there was only one of the kids that I worked with that year in the hostel who had two parents together, and both of those parents hit each other. The, they were a big Irish couple, and they would, <laughs> they would just sort of slug it out of each other in the pub they were. I, I saw things that broke my heart, and I had no framework of reference for and they had no framework of reference for my life either. And so I just told them I went to college um, before I came here, which was, was true, but it was uh, just a sort of party. They'd never heard of A-levels, most of the kids I worked with. One of them had never left the particular estate that he lived in, uh, except to come into Walsall. He'd never been to Birmingham, which was like six miles away. London was like a different planet to the kids in this uh, estate and this town that we were living in. 
And there were rats that ran along the street, which were pretty enormous as well. It was, it was an ex- extraordinary place to be. But one of the most moving things of being there was a woman called Sue, who was a South African. And she had read this book called The Cross and the Switchblade, which if you're over about 35 in the room, you've almost certainly read at some point. And it was a story from back in the day of a guy called Nicky Cruz, who was a Puerto Rican who got caught up in a gang in New York, and he had a thing called a switchblade, which was basically a knife where you pressed a button and the knife would come out. And he was caught up in violent gangs, and if you, there's a backstory to it that his dad was in the occult, and uh, when he started smoking, his dad trapped him in a shed and made him smoke the whole packet and wouldn't let him out of the shed until he died. It's a really horrible, quite satanic and abusive background. And he got to this place, and uh, a preacher from the countryside called David Wilkinson was sent to talk to him. And uh, David Wilkinson had this one message. It was, Jesus loves you, Nicky. And he would get up in the face of this violent offender and say, Jesus loves you, Nicky. And it, it nearly killed him. Uh, but long story short, the Nicky Cruz becomes a born-again Christian and, and tells other people about it. And my friend Sue had read this story in South Africa. And she wanted an adventure like David Wilkinson had had. So she looked on a map and thought, where's the hardest place I can possibly go to? And she ended up in Walsall in the West Midlands of the UK. And uh, she ended up at this housing project that I was living on. I was a, a residential youth worker there. And there were lots, lots of things that were good about it. But one of the things that had been bad about it is that the youth worker before I was there had ended up sleeping with one of the girls who was there. And so the, sort of the abuse cycle had carried on. So when I went for interview, I was absolutely drilled by the chief executive of charity as to how I was going to behave myself when I was there as a youth worker, which I guess was, uh, was a good thing. But we get there, and Sue has been pouring her heart into these 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old kids. And she's been crying out to God for miracles and for salvation in their lives. And she decides that we should put on an alpha course in the community area that we're in. Um, and it, it's sort of like a great idea because Alpha is quite a clever thing, but it's a better thing really if you're able to sit still and concentrate for a while. <laughs> and, and our guys couldn't concentrate for a few seconds. So we, we put on a, this Alpha course and no talks ever happened. No one watched any videos. But this guy came in who she'd been particularly praying for, and he just started asking every question under the sun. It was the most extraordinary thing. And his backstory was was harrowing. His sister was a prostitute, and he had been used as a prostitute on the back of her being a prostitute through his growing up years. And there was a point while we were doing these discussions with this guy that somehow Sue managed to communicate to him that Jesus Christ loved him. And something just broke and melted in him. And it, it was one of those, like, defining moments of your life where you realize that all of the clever kids that I've been at Cambridge University with and all of the apologetics talks that we put on in the Christian Union and in the clever church that I went to where the talks ran on for 55 minutes and were all brilliant Bible expositions and all of that sort of stuff and advantage that they had and the fact that they could have learned it in an extra language if they needed to (laughs) paled into nothing compared to this guy who had had the most horrendous start to life who sort of almost immediately got the idea that it was extraordinary that God loved him. Over here were the guys who were like, I don't know if God believes in him. All these sort of late night debates on whether God existed or whatever. 
And over here was this broken and wounded and damaged but much loved kid who when someone actually said, you're really loved, it just went right to his heart and was transformational. There was another kid who had been in foster care who was there called Dave. Um, And he really stood out because of all the foster kids who came through that project. He was the one who had brilliant Christian family uh, to live in. I I knew it was brilliant because actually the foster dad died during the year I was there. And he went to the funeral. And there were just strings of kids who went to the funeral of this guy. And I knew it was different as well because he he was just a, a different kid to some of the others, less, less volatile. He'd been, he'd been loved and cared for. And we took this guy up to the little Anglican church they went to, and it was a 3.45 service, which is when the choir sang, the, mainly young people, but it was very, very traditional service. And he walked in and he met Jesus. There are other people who met Jesus in all sorts of extraordinary ways that year. There was one kid whose dad was in prison for, uh, for a racist murder. And whose stepdad had beaten him up ever since his dad had been in prison. And he used to react to us in the way that he had been used to being treated. He'd walk up to people and try and get in a fight because he was used to being smashed down. I remember we took him to the church at Junction 10 and he uh, was caught up in this sort of gospel music concert. And, and it, was, it was something like, yes, Jesus loves me or something like that. And suddenly he was singing along to this concert and he, he was transformed as well. See, what I learned that year is God walks towards the people who are really broken. And and what I'd love to do tonight, or what I believe God wants to do tonight, is raise up justice warriors who will walk towards the people who are broken. I don't know what your calling is in your life. Do do you know? Maybe you don't know yet. Maybe you've just got a, a fraction of it coming together in your life. What is the point of this? What does God want me to do? And some of the answers are very simple, to love your neighbor and to love God and to love yourself and to love the church. And it's part of what it's all about. But in the story we've got in the passage tonight, God walks towards one of the most broken people in scripture. And it turns out that she's amazing. Joshua chapter 2. Now Joshua is the main leader of Israel. 40 years previously, he stood where he's standing right here in this passage And he's walked into the promised land and he's gone, this is amazing. I love this place. It's got milk, it's got honey, it's got all the resources in the world, it's fantastic. And his old mate Caleb had walked in and done the same thing. But ten other people had gone in with him and they'd gone, but the people here are scary. We can't go in here. We're like grasshoppers and they're like giants and they're going to squash us. And uh, so for 40 years... The people of Israel hadn't got any further. And now he's standing here where he had stood 40 years previously. And it's his turn to lead the people into the promised land. And he sends two spies to go and have a look at it. And he goes and and they go and they land up in the house of someone called Rahab who is a prostitute there. Now the backstory of Rahab I think is, is fascinating. We don't know a lot directly from the scripture. But there's clues in this chapter that you might have noticed and... I'm picking up from Francine Rivers' wonderful book, uh, Lineage of Grace, which tells the story of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary, all people in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus in the New Testament. And Francine Rivers suggests that, uh, that Rahab here was probably a village girl, a beautiful village girl. Uh, in the story, as we've got it in the Bible here, 
She's in good relationships with her family, her parents, but she's a prostitute. Now, most of the things we know about people who are prostitutes is that often they've got broken relationships with their families. But she saves her family's life later on. She's clearly in good connection with them. So how does she end up in prostitution? So Francine Rivers says, well, maybe she was like this beautiful village girl in a village. And a bit like Queen Esther later on in the story, along comes the king one day and sees her, or one of his officials sees her, and says, you'll do for the harem. You'll do as a concubine of the king. And so she gets drawn into what is basically sexual slavery, drawn into the king's household. And what happens is that after a few years, you get spurned out the other side. You get pampered, you get all the treatment, you get all the prestige of being in the inner circle, and then you get spewed out the other side and put it along five years later, you're turning a trick in a village for a handful of rice. As many people around the world are today. You know, three million children are in slavery each year, taken into slavery each year in the world at the moment, according to the International Justice Mission. Three million. There's a campaign coming out on Radio 4 next week for some of the children in Ghana. Um, If you've ever listened to Radio 4, if you even know what Radio 4 is, it's a big campaign. It will probably raise some money. And these Ghanaian children are used in the fishing industry. And, And they're forced to sort of jump out of the boats and somehow collect fish in. And they're bullied and beaten into submission to do this. And they're working to set these kids free from slavery over there, I, IGM. It's a, it's a wonderful charity. One of our, our, our dear friends works for them here in the UK. But Rahab is potentially a victim of child sexual exploitation, brought into the harem of the king. But she seems a bright girl in this story. I don't know if you noticed just how on top of it she is. She's the one who sort of rescues the spies, pulls them in. She's the one who hides the spies. She's the one who seems to have quite an amazing home. She's got a two-story home in the the wall of Jericho overlooking the exit. She seems to be big enough to protect 20 people in it. Um, Her extended family come and stay in there. Uh, She seems to have quite a lot going for her. Maybe she's sort of made a business out of life. One suggestion Francine Rivers says is, well, maybe when she was a concubine of the king, as that happens, she realized she could catch his ear, as people sometimes can do. And she says to him something like, well, why don't you set me up by the side of the city, and I'll report back to you what's going on. I'll tell you. I'll spy for you. I'll tell you what the captain of the guard says. I'll tell you what the foreigners say. I'll tell you what's going on. And so she creates a little place for herself in the world when she had almost nothing going for her. And then... At the same time, growing in her is this rebellion against the system she's in. God is a God of justice. He hates it when things are wrong. And in her heart is a hatred of what's wrong. She hates these gods in the town that she lives in. She hates the fact that there's child sacrifices going on. She hates the fact there's child prostitution going on. She hates the way people are maltreated in her city. She wants it to come to an end. She's got a heart for justice. She's a justice warrior. And she sees that there's a massive army of the living God camped outside. And she's heard that 40 years ago, they defeated the biggest superpower in the world, the power of Egypt, when their God blew with his wind, puff, 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 he blew just enough, 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 and through the winds there came a wave. That's how they got across the Red Sea. And she's heard the story, she's heard the old story, and she believes it in her heart, she treasures it in her heart, and she says, 
That's the sort of God I want. I want the sort of God who will rally around injustice and destroy what's wrong. And I want him to destroy the wrong in my life. And I want to be free from this. Keeps an eye out for anyone who might come and like be spies from the Israelites. She's got a bound to send someone along. So she looks out for them. She keeps an eye out for them. And when she sees some guys coming who are probably dressed as Moabites or something as priests, then she goes, they've, they've got it wrong. They've definitely, and she draws them into her room. Maybe the captain of the guard spots her. Maybe the captain of the guard knows her. Maybe she says to him something like, well, look, I'll get them drunk. I'll get every bit of information out of them like I normally do. Come back in the evening and I'll give them to you when I've found out everything about the Israelites. And he goes away, tells the king, the spies are Rahab's. And the king gives the order, go and tell Rahab to bring them to me. I want to see them straight away. And she talks back to the king. She says, no, they've gone away. Uh, They've escaped. I don't know where they've gone to. And she's hidden them on her roof under the flats. I mean, she could have been massacred immediately for doing this. Her life is in complete peril, but then she is going to let them down through the window at night. And before they go, she says something to them, which is absolutely critical. If you've got the Bible open, have a look at verses 8 through 11. This is her reason for doing all of this. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea from you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you recently completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. We don't know how much faith the spies had when Joshua sent them to spy on Jericho. We don't know if they were full of faith, like God's going to give us the land. Or if as they walked up towards that massive wall, their knees started to knock. And they were like, how are we going to take this? They weren't trained soldiers. How are we going to take this? But the report they take back to Joshua at the end of the chapter is exactly what Rahab tells them. They say, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. So she passes on faith to them. She passes it on to Joshua. She passes it on to the people. And you'll hear next week the weird and wonderful way in which they uh, then take Jericho. But she also does one more thing. She asks them that they show kindness to her and her family. And that when Jericho is destroyed, not if, but when Jericho is destroyed, that her and her whole family will be saved. And this is like one of the most important bits of this story because it's the big story of the whole Bible. They say, our lives for your life. If, if, we, if you don't tell where we are, we'll treat kindly. And they say, here is a scarlet cord that you have to tie in the window that you let us in. And the scarlet cord was something that reminded them of what they're going to do in just a week or so's time. They're going to come over the Jordan into the promised land. God's going to part the river Jordan as well. They're going to come into the promised land. And the first thing they'll do is celebrate Passover. The second thing they'll do is get circumcised when they're close to their enemies, but that's for next week. It's a pretty, pretty weird thing to do if you can't have said they're your sort of enemies. But they're going to celebrate Passover. 
And Passover was when the blood of the lamb was put on the doorframe of their house when they were in Egypt so that the angel of death would pass over them and they would be saved. The scarlet cord goes down through her window, blood-colored cord through her window to say, you've got this here, you'll be saved. And us here have a blood-stained cross Clockwise or anti-clockwise at the beginning. Hard life or relatively easy life? Hard life or, whoa, hard life or relatively easy life? Joshua had to wander through the desert all through his life. But he was a proper prince of, of Israel. Rahab had been abused hurt and wounded in so many ways. But both of them needed to look to the blood to be saved. Whether you've had it hard or easy, whether you can relate more to my friends at university or my friends in Walsall, we all have to look to the scarlet cord, to the blood, if we want to be saved, if we want to be right with God. And as the, the band come back up now, we're just going to begin to think about God, what do you want to say to me today from this passage? What do you want to do in my heart today from this passage? I want to suggest that there are maybe three things today. One, and most importantly, is I'd love you to just ask yourself the question, have I ever looked to the cross and been saved? It's just a really simple one. We just put this out there again and again because I heard it for years before I really heard it. Do you know that you are safe with Jesus forever because of the blood of Jesus? And if you don't, tonight is a great night to say, please save me. Wasn't long ago, Danielle got baptized as a sign that she believed that the blood of Jesus saved her. If you've never been baptized, if you've never been confirmed in your original baptism either, we'd love to invite you to get baptized and confirmed to say, it's only the blood that saves me. And I need you as much as she needed a scarlet cord, as much as the Israelites needed a Passover lamb, I need you. That's number one. If you've not been baptized yet or confirmed, if you've never knowingly said, it's just your blood, then please, please come and uh, speak to us about that later. The second thing tonight is for anyone who turned whichever way I said it was, where life feels really hard, like you've not had a great start to life, and I, I, it doesn't even matter which way you turned, it may be that actually when you look at your life, it feels pretty half full. It doesn't even matter if it it's half full compared to Rahab. It just feels half full. And that's okay. Life can be really, really tough sometimes. Really tough for all sorts of reasons. And I think God just wants to minister grace tonight to anyone who's feeling like, I'm going for a really tough time. It doesn't matter what anyone else's tough time has been. He knows about your tough time and it's personal to him as well. 
And he'd love to just come and breathe healing into your life this evening. And mercy into your life and forgiveness and love into your life this evening. He just loves to do that. So please, please just, um, why don't we all just stand? So I'm going to explain the third thing once we're stood. So there's that chance to say, God, please, please forgive me. Please let me know that it's the blood that saves me. There's the chance to say, God, I really need your healing. Life's tough. Just breathe on me and bring healing to me now. And then thirdly, I believe there are people like my friend Sue in Walsall. Like some of you in this room already, actually. That God's called him to be justice warriors. He's a righteous God. He's indignant about injustice. One day he'll come and judge the earth and all that's wrong will be gone. But he's holding out his hand in mercy and pity towards us for now. And he's always looking for people who will join in with loosing the bondages of injustice for people. It might be that you find out about IJM. It might be that you get involved in supporting the hostel uh, down the road here in Chiswick. It might be that God's calling you and saying, I'm training social work or law or something where you can do something to make a difference for people. It might be that it's actually just a very little thing, something you can do tomorrow. Someone that you know is hurting and broken around you. You can sit next to at lunchtime, that you can smile at on the tube, that you can just make them feel a bit better. It doesn't have to be a grand big thing. Life is made up of a million little decisions to do the right thing. And I'm just going to pray right now for an anointing for justice to fall in this room and actually for anyone watching online who really needs to hear this now. And if it's you, you may start to feel a tingle or a sense of God working in you or you may just feel a bit angry that things are bad in the world. If you feel anything that's slightly different, just talk to God in your head. If you don't know how to do that, just start a little conversation in your head and go, What's that, Lord? Is this you? Is this you talking to me? And then just wait and see if anything more happens. And if you're not sure, then just pray, God, please, please show me more. And uh, wait and see if anything more happens. And then at the end of the service, if you're not sure, walk out the door and talk to Lydia or Zoe or Tolu or me or anyone that you know. So, I'm not quite sure what went on, but was that God? And we'll, uh, we'll chat you through it. We'll coach you through it. The spirit of the living God. Oh God. Stephen's going to interrupt. Talking to Jesus. <laughs> cool. No, I just had a, I think I had a word as well, just about faith for people personally. There's a thing about faith we've spoken a lot today. And, uh, and I think some people, you know, some people need to become Christians, you know. Some people need to come to Jesus the first time. Uh, and others need to have an anointing for the Lord to call them into, into justice. But I just felt there was a third group that was, um, 
this group of people who just need faith again. That you are a Christian, you've given your life to Jesus, you remember it, but you need faith again to just remember what he can do. And, you know, we live, it, we live under conditions that we put ourselves in. When, when those Israelites were walking to the promised land for the first time, they couldn't believe that God could possibly be bigger than those people in the promised land. But then, then it took 40 years and God said, oh, I am bigger, I'm bigger, I'm bigger. So uh, I just get, got the sense that there are people in here who are just living under maybe a, a marriage that is less than ideal, a marriage that's broken, and you just think that's the way it is now. Or relationships with parents or children, that, that's just it now, that's all we can do, that's the best we can do. And I just feel like the Lord wants to say, I am bigger. I'm bigger, I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I'm stronger. So, Lord, I just pray for faith. I pray for faith. Lord, would you raise our faith in Jesus' name, in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And the, the biggest faith in this story comes from Rahab, who barely knew who God was. So even if you're just starting out, you may find faith is rising in you. That means trust in God. Trust that he can do things for you, and in you, and through you, and for you. Lord, I pray for an anointing in this room and online for people to care about what you care about deeply, to be equipped to join you delivering people from evil, to be equipped to bind up the brokenhearted and to bring sight to the inly blind to help those who are lame morally and emotionally and physically to walk and to set free the chains of those in bondage. It strikes me that our kids have done a great job raising money for the PA project this morning. At the end of the project, we're gonna be trying to raise money for India and for a church in South America and for a women's refuge in Georgia. And it may be that some of you are like, what could I do? And God's like, well, why don't you get involved in that? The women's refuge in Georgia is for women who've had kids out of wedlock and they're like destitute because the society spurns them and gets rid of them. The church in India has made a carpentry workshop because everyone's not got any money because of COVID. They can't live. So they're teaching people skills. And the church in South America, you can find out about at the back there. I'm going to be raising money for these things. Oh, Lord Jesus, we just pray that you touch our hearts now and show us what matters to you and give us a desire to pursue you and joining with what you want to do in Jesus' name.